working? Yeah. Well, if you've never met me before, my name's Lewis. Uh, I'm married to Lois, uh, which you, you did hear right. Um, and, uh, and I've just graduated uh, from Dundee Uni uh, studying social work. I work in the south side uh, with children and families. Um, the final placement on my social work course this time last year was with the Prince's Trust. So that is an organization that works with teenagers, young people who are unemployed and just need that kind of push into employment or education. Uh, and part of that was that every 12 weeks, uh, myself and my colleague would take uh, the young people off on a residential for three nights. Uh, when we were there, we always played this team building game. So we set up this kind of obstacle course, <clears throat> really complex, tables to go over and chairs to go under and all this kind of stuff. And uh, we'd blindfold a few of the young people. Uh, we'd put them in teams, and then two or three of the others had to kind of command the person with the blindfold to get through the obstacle course. So what always happened is you have this person blindfolded, and there's three people, and they're all just shouting different things, right? So this person's just spinning around, don't know where to go, and then they, right, they just curl up in a ball, they give up. They, they literally can't get past the first obstacle. Uh, and so after about 10 minutes of this mayhem, we would say, right, stop, Here, here's the technique. You stand walking backwards up the obstacle course and you say, follow my voice, follow my voice. And it, it's so much easier if the person just follows you and they go around the slalom and they hit the table and you say, follow my voice, lift your leg and they're over. And they do it in like two minutes. Whereas before it was a 10 minute nightmare that they couldn't get through this course. And uh, we, we'd done this game uh, to kind of stress communication in teams. Uh, but there's something spiritually true in that as well. Uh, I think that we're in, we in a cultural moment where we feel, man, there's just voices everywhere, right? Like, even those of us who are Christians, we feel secure in our faith. We, we just feel like that blindfolded teenager, and there's a voice over here telling us to go that way, and one telling us to go that way. And our response is just, I'm going to curl up in a ball, and I don't know where to go. And so this morning, I think what God wants to do with us is just say, actually, you know, look at my word and hear the voice of Jesus saying, follow my voice, follow my voice, and we'll navigate this moment where we're, we're so confused uh, and often feeling lost. We're in the second week of our series in the book of 1 John. Uh, last week, Ian, I thought, so helpfully uh, shared that uh, God's light has burst into the world in Jesus, and he was just exhorting us to bask in God's light, right? It, it was just, his light has come, soak it in, let it flow through you. It, it was this message just of God's goodness. Uh, but I think, actually, we, we sometimes feel, yeah, that's fine, but we all disagree on what that looks like. What do I actually do? That's fine and well, but how do I bask in the light of God? And in chapter 2 of 1 John this morning, John is going to kind of pivot into a bit of a comparison. So there's false teachers kind of invading this church, and they're just feeding lies, right, about obedience and faith and who Jesus is. And there's just this sense of, man, the believers in this church are confused. They don't know what way to go. They're, they're, they're lost. And I think there's just going to be some clarity in our passage this morning about what that looks like to follow Jesus. So John is writing to do two major things. The first one is to assure the believers, uh, if you follow Jesus, you're on the right path, right? Keep going. He wants to encourage them in that. And the second one is a warning. Now, we love the first one, right? But we need to hear the second one. What these false teachers are teaching is serious. And so he's going to stress both. 
Here are the three big things that he'll plead with this church to do. Obey God's commands, delight in God's goodness, and believe in God's Son. Uh, let's pray together before we jump in. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that it's true, that it's, it's relevant, Lord. We <clears throat> don't come this morning to try and pry meaning out of it, but actually it, it speaks directly to us uh, in the 21st century. God, you speak just as loud today as you did the day that you wrote these words. So, Lord, would you come now uh, by your Holy Spirit? Would you prepare our hearts? And, Lord, would you speak to us? We pray that we would uh, leave this room changed by your word for your name. Amen. Well, the first thing we'll see is that John wants the believers to obey God's commands. So if you have your Bible, have a look at 1 John chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly is the love of God perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Well, a few weeks ago, uh, Lois and I went home to visit my mum and dad, and uh, Rangers were playing on the TV. So it was Rangers against Livingston. Uh, and if you had read the, the kind of sports section of the papers that week, you'd have seen the Livingston owner was, was waxing lyrical about, this is a huge night for our club. Right, we, we've sold out the stadium, every ticket sold, there's none left, it's going to be packed to the rafters with Livingston fans, we can't wait. But we, we got home, we, we, we stuck on the TV, and the stadium is not full of Livingston fans. It's like a sea of blue, and they're singing songs which I cannot repeat the words in this room. Uh, they're not Livingston fans, right? The, the owner's saying one thing, this is an amazing night for us, and then we look at the evidence and we just go, their allegiance isn't with the Livingston. They're clearly Rangers fans. There's, nobody's denying it when they watch that game. And I think what our passage is saying is that actually we're, we're kind of like spiritual football supporters, right? So, so we, can, we can say one thing with our mouths, but the way that we act just declares louder than our words what team we're supporting, right? Right? So the, the Rangers fans are singing sectarian songs and wearing blue strips, and it's really clear that they're not from Livingston. And, and when these false teachers say, we know God, we, we have this special anointing from him, and yet then they start to live in sin, their actions don't match up, right? It's really clear that their allegiance is not with God, it's with someone else. If I'm 
going to watch Rangers play away and I'm sitting in the, with the home fans, if Rangers score, I cannot contain my instinct to jump up and celebrate, right? If the away team score, I can't really hide the disappointment in my face. We naturally betray to the world where our allegiance is by our just gut way that we react. Uh, and, and, and what we're going to see in this passage is it, we, we can't just say, the false teachers can't just say, oh, we know God, follow us. The way that they live tells us something completely different. Uh, I think we see this in two big ways. So their relationship to the law of God is really what we're talking about. How, how do they view God's commands? How do they interact with them? And, uh, and in chapter 1, uh, we see this. Those who claim to be without sin are liars. And then in chapter 2, John will tell us that if you claim to know Jesus, you have to live like him. There's no two ways about it. These are the, these are the two things. So we can sum up their view of sin like this. They claim to be without sin, and they say that they have this special knowledge, special anointing from God, and yet they betray that they don't know God by their sinful behavior. They have presented themselves to this church under the guise of knowing God, but the way that they act has made it crystal clear that they don't know Him at all. They claim that they have not sinned. They claim that they know God, that they're really tight with Him, not in spite of their sin, not in spite of the way they live, but because they are so holy. So holy that they don't even need to consider God's commands. And their self-perceived righteousness has become this club that they're bashing this church with to accuse them of false religion. Now, Jonathan Haidt, he's an American moral psychologist. Uh, he wrote this book called The Righteous Mind. And he says just that, we have righteous minds, right? Which, what he's saying is that our kind of natural moral proclivity is to try and justify ourselves, right? So Christians and non-Christians and people in tribes in the Amazon and, and politicians in Westminster, <clears throat> all of our kind of gut moral thing that we always want to do is to justify ourselves, right? Like we just have this innate feeling of, no, I'm enough. I don't need to obey. I don't need any of this stuff. I, I'm fine, I'm justified before God, whether we would use that language or not, we do have this view of ourselves. Um, and I think, he, I think he's right. I think there's two main ways that we relate to God's commands uh, in, in the world, and we wouldn't, they wouldn't use the theological language that we might, and in the church, uh, and, and they both betray this thing about us, which is that we, we just don't want to think that we're not good enough for God. We want to justify ourselves. So the first uh, false view that we have of God's commands um, is this one. We view God's commands as this kind of hurdle, right? So God is on the other side, uh, and there's this hurdle we have to get over. And if I can't cross this hurdle, then I, I can't get to God. He's there. The good stuff is on the other side, and there's a wall that's been constructed. And what we often do is we, we, we tear down the wall, right? So we say, no, that command doesn't count. This one doesn't count. And, and we make this little neat package of, oh yeah, all I have to do is go to church on a Sunday, and then I'm justified, right? I can just step over this wall, and I've got to the good stuff. I'm in. I've got over the nuisance. The other one is that, who cares about God's commands? Right? Like, he loves me. 
He sent Jesus. He's torn down that oppressive wall that I had to get over. I can just stroll in. Who cares how I live? Now, I think in our culture, we're, we're a bit more close to that second one, which is how dare he tell us how to live. Um, but I, do you see what they both have in common? It's that they, they both view the law as this kind of nuisance little wall that only serves to just be like a, a tripwire in our way. Right, so we're all on the path to God, and then we trip up on God's commands, and we just, man, they're the enemy, right? I just think we have this view, even in the church, of thank goodness that God has destroyed the law because it was such a nightmare, and now I can just walk in and live how I want, and I'm free. But listen to the way that David describes the law in Psalm 19, so starting in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey and honey from the honeycomb. For David, the law is not the enemy. It's this wonderful gift. He says elsewhere in the Psalms that he lies awake at night just meditating on God's laws. I just think that sounds crazy to us, right? Who lies in bed at night thinking, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and like getting really excited about it, right? But to David, the law is this like perfect expression of God's character. He sees God's commands, and in his commands, he sees God. So it's glorious. Both of our wonky views of God's law view the law as this wall, and we have to get to the other side. The Bible portrays God's law as a magnifying glass. And as we look into it, God is glorified, he's magnified, he's made bigger to us. And we look through it, and we go, wow kind of God do we serve, right? So you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's because God loves his neighbor as himself, right? The God who is love. Even the commands in the Bible about sex and sexuality that we often just kind of shirk away from, they display something glorious about who God is. He's committed to us. He has one bride. There's diversity in the church. We just see, we see all of this stuff as we gaze into God's law. And, and we just find this, this God who perfectly fulfills all of the laws that he lays out. They're not this tripwire. They're a perfectly glorious magnifying glass. So we get to John's plea, do not sin. Why? Because God's law isn't arbitrary. It's not a keep off the grass sign. It's a, it isn't a list of random commandments designed to just frustrate us and annoy us so that we realize how much we need him. No, it's the perfect expression of his will. So if you sit here today and you would invoke his name and say, no, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus. We have to expect that you're going to love and follow the commands that perfectly show you his character. It, you can't say on one hand, I love Jesus. Now, on the other, just live however you like. See, we are given a mountainous aim. Do not sin. It's impossible. I can't do it. I know that you can't do it. 
But when we find that we can't, we face a miraculously merciful reality. Christ argues my case with the Father and is the atoning sacrifice for my sins. This is the true Christian's relationship to sin and grace. Here's the wonderful paradox of the Christian life. If you think that you are sinless, you're a liar, and you will come before God and be found desperately wanting. If you sit here today and know that you are so far from sinless that you can't even look at Him, then you will be transformed into a Jesus-imitating saint. A denial of the reality and seriousness of sin leads to a deadly arrogance when it comes to God. But if we will face up to the reality of our sin, have it dealt with through Jesus, then we will find true and lasting assurance that we know Him and that we are loved by Him. See, I think it's trendy in our day to kind of speak about being on a spiritual journey, right? It's just like, I don't need dogma, I don't need, I don't need church, I'm just on a journey, right? What people mean by that is, I don't know where I'm going, right? They're just kind of meandering, doing whatever they want. The Christian life is a journey, but it's not this kind of meander through the countryside. I don't know where I'm going. It's a sunny day. I'm just going to enjoy the scenery. It's this like committed stride towards God's will for you, which is obedience. See, God's end in saving you, His purpose in saving you, wasn't so that you could just say, I am forgiven, I'm a Christian, I'm, I'm off scot-free, it's fine. Like he, had, he had bigger purposes for you. C.S. Lewis uh, puts it like this when he talks about the process of becoming more like Jesus. He says, if you bought a derelict house, I mean, it, it's, it's unlivable. You, you can't live in this house. You've got it for £10,000 on the market, and, and you're going to do it up and either sell it or live in it you would not just give it a new lick of paint, right? If, if the floorboards are rotting and damp and a serious health and safety hazard, you don't just put a rug on top of them, right? You would, you would rip up the floorboards and tear down a wall, maybe put up a conservatory over here. Like, you would renovate. You wouldn't just, you know, put a lick of paint on because you're looking to live in the house. When you live somewhere, you want it to be livable, right? You don't just go, well, it looks fine. God is looking for a house to live in. He is not just going to stick a Christian badge on your forehead and then move on. Done with him. Done with her. Next one. Now, he's making a home for himself, and God does not live in derelict houses. He takes derelict houses and he renovates them until they're glorious temples of his Holy Spirit. I wonder if some of us here just feel, man, you know, I'm a Christian. I, I do love Jesus. I love worshiping him on a Sunday. You know, I'm quite disciplined. I read my Bible. I pray. I tell my colleagues about him. But I just can't see the link between holiness and the goodness of God. I love him, but I just don't. I'm forgiven. Why can't I just indulge once or twice? I'm just a bit of fun, and then I'll repent. God has more for you than religiosity. Don't be content with a badge on your, your stomach that says, um, Christian, and then you move on. He wants to renovate you. Don't be content with a lick of paint. 
He's going to tear down a wall here and lift up a conservatory here, and you'll be transformed. Lean into that process. He has more for you than the sin that you're caught in. Let's keep going. Have a look at verses 15 through 17 with me. And we're going to see our second point, which is delight in God's goodness. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. I love St. Augustine. You didn't think it was going there when I said love. (laughs) If you pick up one of his books, right, and you just flick to a page and read a sentence, Maybe you win, but I just love him. So I can't help but worship, right? He, he writes in this style that is just so worship-filled. And uh, St. Augustine will say um, in many different ways in different texts that we are not primarily thinkers, right? So our post-enlightenment culture would say, yeah, rationalism, what we think, that's the way forward. And then he'll say we're not primarily feelers. So our kind of do what feels right to you, postmodern culture would say, yeah, we feel, and then we do. And Augustine says that we are primarily lovers. We're worshipers. The deepest part of you doesn't think or feel. It praises. It's intrinsic to the way that you're made. Now, in the last um, section we just looked at, the, the dichotomy, right, was love versus hate. Do you love your brother? Well, then, yeah, you're a Christian. If you, if you declare his name and hate your brother, then you've betrayed that you're not. But our dichotomy here is love versus love. We all love. The great tragedy of humanity isn't that we don't love something. It's not that we don't worship something. It's that we misplace our affections. Blaise Pascal, who is a um, French philosopher, um, he put it this way. He said, all men seek happiness. There are no exceptions. However different the means they employ, they all strive towards this goal. Joy. We're joy seekers. He goes on. The reason why some go to war and some do not is the same desire in both, but interpreted in two different ways. The will never takes the least step except to that end. This is the motive of every act of every man. I think he's right. We're all searching for true joy. Right? You, you don't do a single thing that is not so that you can end up at this kind of point that you've defined for yourself where finally you'll have joy. Finally you'll be there. And what it is that we, we think we'll find joy in, if we trace the path back, That's the thing that our hearts are worshiping. Somebody a bit more modern, uh, atheist author David Foster Wallace, says essentially the same thing. He says this, because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice you get is what to worship. 
So here's the first of the two reasons why we shouldn't love the things of the world. Because love for God and love for the world cannot coexist. They're fighting for the same ground. They want your affections and your joy and your worship. And if you say on one hand, yeah, I love God, and then the other, you're pursuing career over, over the will of God, those two things don't work together. You're, you're actually worshiping your career over Jesus. If I expect that Lois will not on one hand say she loves me and on, and on another be on the subway eyeing up guys and flirting with them and right? And, and she's out late one night, and I was just hanging out with this guy from work, right? Like, I have a right, if she's doing that, to be angry. Like, of course I'll be jealous. That's a rightful demand on my part, that she doesn't have a wandering eye, and vice versa. That has not been an issue so far. <laughs> and God is not being kind of tyrannical to demand that his bride, the church, only loves him, only worships him and desires him and delights in him. If you have a wandering eye, which is just, yeah, you know, I love Jesus, but man, I've got all this other stuff that could fulfill me. You're like a husband who is not fully committed to his wife. The Bible and other places say that you are an adulterer. When we primarily desire anything other than God, we are misplacing the most basic core of what it means to be human. God created you for worship in his presence. He created us to be his people. So if you really know him, don't sacrifice the exclusivity and the joy of that relationship on the altar of your toys and trinkets and pleasures. It's not worth it. Here's reason number two that we shouldn't love the things of the world uh, in verse 17. The world is passing away. Well, when I was young, uh, if my brother and I had been well-behaved, we would get this really exciting treat on a Friday night, which is we would go to Blockbuster. Just loved it, right? You would get in and there's videos everywhere and it would feel like you were there for four hours digging through the VHS tapes You'd get one, you'd go home, you'd have it for a week, and you'd watch it like 15 times in the week. It was just it was such a treat. And at the peak of Blockbuster's success, and they were flying, right? Everyone loved Blockbuster. It was just it was brilliant. And at the peak of, at the height of their success, you would go, man, that's a great investment. I might invest some money in Blockbuster. But we have this benefit of hindsight, right? Within about a year, Netflix comes along. They're, they're shipping DVDs to people. Then they've got the streaming service. And Blockbuster is dead in the ground. I mean, it happened so fast. There is one Blockbuster left in the world. And it's really just a museum, right? Like, it doesn't get used. It's as though God is hovering over time and saying, hey, do you remember Blockbuster? It was a terrible investment. It looked like it was powerful, right? It was at the peak of its powers. It was a bad investment. When your sin and pleasures and career and romance feels like it's on an upward trajectory, it's just never going to end. I want to invest in this thing. I'm going to put the hope of my eternity in this woman. And God is hovering over time and saying, no, no, no. 
Those things are just like Blockbuster. They're on their way down. They're about to crash and burn. If, if we had gone back in time and said, please don't invest in Blockbuster. It's a bad idea. We would hope that people would listen. Listen to God. Your kind of little worshipping altars that you think are going to save you are on their way out the door. Don't invest in them. We don't often frame worship in these kind of business terms, right? Like cost-benefit analysis. But I think that's here. There's a pragmatism about it, right? The world's passing away. Don't waste your time. It's a terrible investment. John Piper will call this view Christian hedonism. Which sounds like a paradox, but it goes something like this. Your job and this world and your money and your friends and all of your stuff cannot provide you with one tiny dose of lasting joy. Not, not an ounce. It can give you this kind of false pretense today, but it will not give you lasting joy. The true joy that you were made for is found in Jesus. If you put your faith in him, you will find complete and utter satisfaction in the one who made you for himself. It's a simple decision, right? Choose happiness. If you knew that one business is going to thrive and one is going to crash and burn, you would be a moron to invest in this one. Invest in the things that are eternal. Be pragmatic, right? Choose your joy. Choose happiness. Stop choosing death. Have a look at verse 16 with me and uh, John's description of the things of this world. He says this, The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. Sounds familiar to me. The mantra of our age is simple. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Don't let anything get between you and the thing that you desire. Sacrilegion in our culture is just denying yourself. But this mantra, and cultural commentators have called it expressive individualism, is killing you. You're a terrible, terrible judge of what's good for you. I mean, just awful. We don't have a clue, right? Like, honestly, it's like we're little children who keep trying to touch the hob. And God is saying, man, come on. And we just keep doing it. It's killing us. If you think over the heartache of your life and the pain that you've gone through, most of your heartache is because you've led yourself into pain. You've just pursued things that were not good for you. We know this. God is pleading with you. Stop following your heart. Follow Jesus. The worst thing that you can worship, all the things that we could worship, is yourself. You will tear down this distinction between creator and creature, and you will attempt to make yourself into a little God and you will be devoured by the weight of that. You're, you can't craft meaning for yourself. You cannot provide yourself with lasting joy. 
And we have this kind of baseline level of anxiety in our culture today because we just cannot stop looking at ourselves. Right? Like we're caught in this feedback loop of likes and shares and followers. For the first time in human history, we can look at a number which tells us how popular we are, how much attention we're getting. That is eating us alive. Our mental health is getting worse. We're anxious. We're scared. We're confused. We're lonelier than we'd like to admit. We're just grasping at anything that will provide us with a semblance of life. Expressive individualism is a destructive lie. It is not compatible with following Jesus, and it is passing away with this world. Here's St. Augustine again. You move us to delight in praising you, for you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. There's this moment, right, where we see God as he is. We just down tools. We go, no, I'm for you now. You're my one desire. I'm giving up on me. I don't know if you've ever tried to take a photo of something on your phone, sunset or something, and you open the camera, and you're greeted with your own face, right? And it's just grotesque, right? It's horrible. And you, like, you're down here, so you've got like seven chins, and your eyes are all dark, and it's just, on, like, there's this moment where you're like, oh, please, and we all start tapping the flip button. And finally, there's the sunset. Oh, relief. Something glorious. I don't need to look at myself. Can we have that moment as a church with God? When we're stuck on selfie mode and we just can't stop looking at ourselves and we actually see our sin, we see that, man, I'm, I'm spiritually grotesque without Jesus. Hit the flip button. Look at Jesus. He is infinitely more glorious, more captivating, more beautiful than you could ever be. Walk away from the tyranny of worshiping yourself and step into the light and beauty of God. Have a look with me at verses 18 through 27. Children, it is the last hour as you have heard, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Well, the last thing we need to see is really simple. You don't get God without Jesus. 
See, those false teachers who are trying to lead the church astray, they have this view of Jesus. He's not, he's not the Christ. He's not the Messiah. He's just a really good example for us. To them, Jesus is just like us. And he gives us this really neat, perfect example of what it looks like to live in obedience to God in this world. They want a Jesus who does not save, but who lived an anointed religious life and whose example we can kind of participate in. These are people who claim to be Christians, and yet they have whittled Jesus down to where he's just a forerunner for my spiritual experience. Their Jesus was not the Messiah. Their Jesus was not God become man for the sake of dying and rising again for our salvation. They had kingless kingdom syndrome. We see this all the time today, right? One of the glorious effects of the spread of the church in the West is this notion of equality and fairness and justice, right? So we see racial justice and equal rights for women and freedom and democracy. These are wonderful outworkings of God's kingdom. These are glorious things. Jesus has torn down the wall of hostility, not just between us and God, but between us and those who don't look like us or live like us, and our world has changed because of that. Because of Jesus, the world today does not look like the world 10 years before he came. What's happened in our culture, where we we used to be Christian and now we're kind of post-Christian, is that we've co-opted some of these things. So we've taken God's kingdom, we've taken these kind of outworkings of what it means to follow Jesus and see his kingdom come, not all of them, but some of them, and our culture has colonized them for secularism. They want the kingdom of God without the kingdom's king. But some of us in this room feel ourselves being pulled along by a wave of Christless Christianity. We have to see the gravity of their low, dismissive view of Jesus. John does not use the A word lightly. There's a growing sense as we read the Bible of this great kind of end times antichrist who will come and will deceive the church. But there's also this idea of many smaller antichrists who will kind of share in his spirit, share in his lies. And what defines them is two things. So the first is that they deny that Jesus is God in the flesh. Second is that they are intentionally infiltrating the church and trying to lead Christians astray. So we're not saying that all non-Christians are antichrists. We are saying that the lie of the antichrist is believed the world over. Here's the real damage of their lie. Verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. If you do not declare in your heart that Jesus is God's Son, you have no access to God. True spirituality is not a pick and mix. You don't get to choose whatever path you want. There is one path to God, and His name is Jesus. 
Keep reading. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. It's that simple. Do you believe in the Son? You have the Father. Here's how John describes who Jesus is in the prologue of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and his life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You, you don't know what's going on in my head right now. Sounds sinister. But you, you don't know, right? Like, you don't know what my next point in the sermon is going to be. The only way that you know is for me to speak. Right? So my mind's whirring all the time, and you have no idea what's going on until I verbalize it. So John is saying that Jesus is to God what my words are to my thoughts. He's the Word of God. How do we get to God? How do we know who He is, what He's like, what He desires, what His commands are? We look at Jesus. He's, he's the Word of God. He's God spoken into our world. Bible says that God dwells in unapproachable light. Jesus is the unknowable God made known to us. He's the invisible God made visible to us. Of course, He's the only way to God. He is God Himself come to reveal Himself to us. If you reject Jesus, you have rejected God. If you don't like that language, if you, re- if you reject Jesus, you have rejected truth, you've rejected goodness, you've rejected joy and peace and hope, you've rejected all that is good because he is the physical embodiment of all that is good. Do you want truth? Do you want to find true life, true love, the truest way to live and the truest one to love, then come to Jesus. Abide in him is how verse 24 puts it. Make your home in the word of God become flesh. And you will resist the lies that the enemy is so desperate to get into our ranks. Love this book, get into it, pour over it, feed on his words, drink them in. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Abiding in Christ is the antidote to the lies of the Antichrist. Let me finish with this plea from Derek Bruner. This is my prayer for us as we come now to sing again and take communion together. Let me, let me read this. This is what I've been praying for us this week. Come into union with the Word who made you, and you will come to life. You came from Him. Please come back to Him. You were made for Him. 
The result of this reunion will be more than human existence. It will be human life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are light. And in you there is no darkness at all. Father, we just recognize this morning that in the way that we live and the things that we desire and the way that we view your son, they're so often not the way that you would desire. Lord, I pray for those of us in this room who are going, man, I don't think I've ever followed God's will this way. I don't think I've ever desired him as my one true desire. I pray that you would just stir something in us this morning. Those who just feel, man, I'm not, I'm not doing this, would be encouraged, and more that you would now speak to them and do a work in them. Lord, would you come now by the power of your Spirit and do business with us? Lord, we pray that this room would be full of people worshiping and delighting in the goodness of God. Lord, we want to abide in Jesus, who's the source of goodness and joy and eternal life. So would you reveal him more to us this morning? Would you draw us closer? For your wonderful name. Amen.